If you have your Bibles, won't you open up to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. It's the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. That's going to be our, our anchor verse for this morning. I'll read it to you, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. And this is a guy called Joseph that we're going to hear about this morning saying to his brothers, um, who did some terrible things to him. And this is what Joseph said to his brothers. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. But that's what we want to focus, focus on here is you meant it for evil. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That's what we want to talk about this morning is we've called this sermon series, How About Some Good News for a Change? And uh, today we're looking at the topic of a good purpose. How, if at all, can we hope for something good to come out of really bad situations? And I'm sure many of you are familiar this morning with the term good news, right? But unfortunately, it seems to be coming less and less nowadays. Good news doesn't seem to be very much uh, in abundance. Rather, when you turn on the news or go into Facebook... How many of you are Facebook junkies here? Want to put up your hand? <laughs> there we go. If you go into social media or you love watching TV, there's a lot of stuff going down in the world at the moment, not so? Things are shaking. There's political disunity in countries. You know, we think South Africa has problems. If you really read international news, our problems are, are much less than many of what the nations of the world are facing. Global economic recession. What about when you read about the widespread corporate and state corruption? We think it's a problem in South Africa. I tell you, you look at South America, you look at these nations in Asia. But what about the evidence of our planet uh, that it's starting to really groan under the waste that we produce as human beings? But what about this? This was very real to me. You know, there's a, maybe a mass shooting across the world in New Zealand. And within minutes, it's on your TV, it's on your Facebook posts. It literally comes into your own home, not so? You can be thousands of kilometers away, and then all of a sudden, you have got other people's pain being carried in your own hearts. Now, that's something quite remarkable. I don't think ever in the world... Has we, we have as a generation been exposed to so much negative information on a daily basis. And one lady put it so well, it's as if we almost in this global macro depression. Don't you feel that? It's almost like everybody seems a bit gloomy nowadays, not so? And uh, it's a funny thing because as human beings, we're almost programmed to focus on negative things. If I, if I had a white piece of paper and I drew a black dot on it, what would you say? If I asked you what's on the piece of paper, what would your answer be? The black dot, not so? It's almost as if we, are, we gravitate towards the bad news. And in actual fact, scientists have done some uh, research and they call it negativity bias. Where if you have the choice between good news and bad news, what are you going to choose? 
Some of us is like when we look at our photos, right? Oh, and you say, that's such a beautiful dress. We go, oh, look at that pimple. Or, you know, that one thing, that strand of hair that's just out of place. It's remarkable. And do you know that scientists have shown that if you have a good day, you don't really carry it over into the next. It doesn't really determine the next day being a great day. But if you have a bad day, you kind of carry that all into your week. Not So some of you said, I had a terrible Monday and it's already Friday. <laughs> And that's how it works. It's, it's actual fact. When you hear negative news, that's why negative news sells, is in your brain there's certain chemicals that are released called cortisol and adrenaline that actually stimulates you. You have a physical response, even though you are not directly the one being engaged or affected by the bad news. So then, that's enough. You're asking, this is supposed to be about good news. Matt, where's the good news? This all sounds familiar. Well, the good news is this, is that... Although there is this world that's almost filled to the brim with bad news, is that there is good news that not only is greater, but infuses, is working, is able to come into these situations and bring about tremendous good. God can and does take the worst, the bad, the most terrible situations and he works it for our ultimate good. He does. And there's a guy I want to look at. I wish I had time to read it, but it's 13 chapters long, so I'll spare you. <laughs> it's in the book of Genesis. It starts in chapter 37 and goes all the way to Genesis chapter 50. And it's about a guy called Joseph. Now, how many of you know the life of Joseph in the Bible? Don't worry if you don't. I'm just going to give you a quick headline. But this guy, if he ever there was a person who got a rotten deal more than once, it was this guy called Joseph. Oh, my goodness. And maybe some of you, as I'm going to tell you his story, you can resonate with a few things that happened to him. The first is that his life, he, he was born into a large family. Anybody have 10 siblings here? Anybody? Oh, Rose, you're our special lady. Were you the eldest or the youngest, Rose? Near the middle, near the middle. So Rose knows what it's like. Now imagine having 10 brothers. And Joseph's the last born up until this point, and he's his father's favorite. And his father makes all his brothers know that this boy is his favorite. And how does he do it? He gives him the best clothes, a, a robe of multicolors, right? And this Joseph walks into dinner, gets up in the morning. Oh, well, they're all putting on their rotten old shepherd clothes. He puts on his uh, Dolce and Gabbana coat and says, look how much dad loves me. Now, do you think that's very good for sibling relationships? Oh, no. I can see that too. Can you imagine? Yeah. And so they get jealous of him and they don't like him. And then he's a guy that has an unusual gift. He's a guy that dreams and he's able to know what the meaning of the, what the, meaning of the dreams are. How many of you would like that? I would love that gift, eh? And Joseph has a dream about his brothers and mother and father bowing down to him. Now, if you ever have a dream like that, please don't tell your family members that that's what's going to happen. If Elijah came to me and said, Daddy, you're going to bow down to me, I'll give you my hiding, right? No, I'm just kidding. I wouldn't do that. I'd probably just say, no, my boy, um, let me just check what you're taking. Um, and so this guy, but what happened was these brothers were even more jealous of him. And so what happened one day is this... This guy, whom they called a dreamer, Joseph, was walking to his brothers who were in a certain field, and they decided they're going to kill him. That was the state of their family. Dysfunctional family, right? You can relate to that sort of thing. 
They hated this guy so much, they decided they're going to kill him in cold blood. And uh, whilst they're eating their lunch and Joseph's screaming for his dear life for rescue, they see some Ishmaelites coming along. They sell him into these, these slave traders' hands. Can you imagine? Imagine that. Your sister sells you into slavery. Hey, Tam? Michaela says, ah, great, I'm going to make some pocket money. And they take him off to Egypt. Now you must remember, he didn't know where he was going. He was going far away from his family. And uh, this was his first big blow. The second is he goes and he lands in this household called Potiphar, uh, or a guy who runs it called Potiphar. He's a very high up in the army of the Pharaoh. And cut a long story short, he does really well. He gets promoted to run this household. And then there's, unfortunately, in Potiphar's house, a desperate housewife. And her name is Mrs. Potiphar, and she is really keen on Joseph. He's a young man, and he's very handsome, and she tries to get Joseph to sleep with him. But he refuses because he fears God. And, and one day, she gets close to him, and she grabs his garment as he runs out the house. And when her hubby comes home, she says, this guy tried to rape me. And falsely accused, Joseph gets thrown into this prison without a trial, without having a hearing, he gets chucked into this prison, and that's his second big blow. Then he does really well in the prison, and so he begins to, to get promoted under the prison keeper. I don't know what promotion looks like as a prisoner, but he did really well. And one day, two really important servants of Pharaoh came. It was Pharaoh's baker. He did all of his croissants in the morning, and you know, he sort of eclairs at tea time, and he was a really good guy. And then he had the cupbearer, who was very responsible because it was his responsibility to make sure that Pharaoh wasn't poisoned. And they get thrown into jail for whatever reason. And the long story short is this, is that they have dreams. And Joseph knows how to interpret dreams. And Joseph interprets correctly, and the beggar gets hanged, and the cupbearer gets sent into Pharaoh's court. And Jacob says, Joseph says, cupbearer, please remember me when you go to Pharaoh. Don't forget me. Put in a good word. Say, I'm in here unjustly. And what does the cupbearer do? He forgets about Joseph for two years. Imagine that. Who wants a life like Joseph here? Anybody? Miserable. Two years. And then one day, who has a dream but Pharaoh himself? And none of his wise men can interpret it. But ah, the cupbearer remembers after two years his error. And he says, I know a guy is in prison. And in one day, Joseph gets promoted from being a prisoner to being prime minister in the palace. Isn't that incredible? He saves whole nations from famine. He saves his own family. And one day, driven by their hunger, his brothers come into uh, uh, Joseph's presence. But he looks like an Egyptian. He's, he's disguised. They don't recognize him. And they bow down to Joseph asking for food. And the dream comes true. And what does Joseph do? He goes, ha, you smelly people, you scum of the earth. I'm going to kill you. He says, no, don't worry about it. I forgive you. Because what you meant for evil, look what God has done. God's meant it for good. And Joseph becomes the means of saving his family from famine and death. Now, I wonder about you this morning. Which part of Joseph's story do, do you resonate with? You maybe have some dreams for your life, Anna-Marie. Never had this had some dreams, you maybe 21, and you think to yourself, wow, how are those dreams working out? Is your life looking like, don't answer the question, don't worry. Um, 
Or, or maybe you feel that you've been done an injustice. Maybe as a mother or as a father, you've done everything for your kids and they've just turned around and said, I don't want anything to do with you. Maybe you're a person that feels trapped like you're in a pit. You're just in a pit. Or you're in a dungeon and you're chained to some sort of circumstance in your life. You didn't choose it. Maybe it's some sort of health problem. Maybe it's some, some part of your life is playing out like Joseph's where you feel, how can any good come out of my life? Or maybe you've been like somebody who has been in trouble and you went to somebody who you really trusted and said, don't forget me, don't forget me. I'm in trouble and they've forgotten you. They've moved on in life and the very people you depended upon have left. Now, the question we're asking is, can good possibly come out of this kind of life? Could God possibly be intending good to come out of your most painful stories? Absolutely, 100%. And I want to just share three very simple points with the bit of time that we have left on how we can trust that good is working in the midst of times when we ask ourselves the question, can any good come from this? And the first point is this. We must never confuse God's character with our life circumstances. Don't we do that? I'll say it again. We must never confuse God's character, who He is, with how things are going in life around us. Because what we tend to do is this. We make this mistake. We go, well, things are going well. Maybe I got a job. Or I got my degree. Or I got the marks I wanted. Man, I'm, things are going really well. God's in charge. He's large and He's in charge. And I must be doing something pretty well because my life is going pretty well. God must be pleased with me because everything is going thumbs up. Anybody ever done that before? I've done that. Or maybe you can't own that, but the flip side is, is if you can't recognize that, I'll tell you how you can recognize it. That's the way you think is when things start going badly, you go, oh, maybe God's not so in control or maybe I've done something wrong. This is the danger. Is you paint who God is in his character based on the fluctuating, changing seasons and circumstances of your life. And if there's one thing that damages a relationship with God and an ability to trust him in the midst of difficult times, is saying when things start going tough, God has changed towards me. Now, when we begin to grasp that God is unchanging towards us as life is changing around us, that's really good news. Isn't that good news? Because you have this anchor, you have this sense of, I know that I know that is all these waves are hitting the boats. I know what, you, what that feels like. When you have one after the other after the other, what is it that's going to keep you centered and, and certain, even when you've made bad mistakes, even when there's been some sort of, of rocking of, 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 of uh, things that you have found uh, in your security? And what is, is that you can realize that there is one unchanging factor in all the change, and that is God himself. 
You see, the problem that we sometimes find is, is that, and it's an instinctive thing, is that if we just do the right things, say the right prayers, quote the right scriptures, is that we can almost make God like a puppet. And when we do the right things, we get the things we want. Life's going well. When we don't do the right things, we don't get the, the, the things that we, we want. Life, uh, uh, we're not doing well with God. All of that, that whole concept and way of thinking relating to God, I tell you what, it damages us. And it's a bit like us wanting to marry God for his money is that you realize, well, I want a better life, I want a better car, I want maybe a husband or a wife. Or, is, so I'm going, to, I'm going to come to God and, 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 and relate to Him in a way so that I can get out of Him what I want, a good life. But one of the beauties that happens when we face times of difficulty and pain is it kills that heresy inside of us. That God is relating to me based on how well I'm doing or not doing. That in actual fact, God's character doesn't change even when I do. Now, that's good news. Because if we don't believe that, when things start going wrong, there's no money left in the bank. Because when things start going wrong, and we believe that we are relating to God and based on our performance and how well we are doing, He's going to be nice to us. And based on how not well we're doing, He's going to be ugly towards us. What happens is when things start going wrong, who do you turn to? Who do you turn to? You only have who to blame yourself or people around you because you're the cause of all this trouble. No, my friend, sometimes stuff happens in life that you have no control over. And if you're going to relate to God like that, it's going to be devastating because the one place you to find refuge in you're going to run from because there's no security in who God is and so the other flip side of that is you can get a little bit proud when things are going right in your life you can go well look I'm getting things right let me show you let me share the secrets of pleasing God and getting him on your side that's that's pride that's arrogance no I'm taking a long time to say this is look at the life of Joseph when the chips are down, when the money's run out, when his family's forsaken him, he's still able to love and trust God because he knows God has not changed towards him. And that is the secret, first and foremost, of when tough times hit, you realize that God has not changed and he's rock solid, rock solid in your life, to lean on, to fall on, to build on, to look to. The second is this, that God can use hardships for higher purposes. That's an amazing thing. For God's people, at least, the one thing that you can be sure of in your life as a Christian, this is for the Christ follower, is that Romans 8.28 is God can work all things. Just a few things? No. All things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You know what that means for me one day? One day I'll look back on my parenting, and as best as I've tried, I will have failed my children. I'm not perfect. You know what the comfort is for me? As I do my best and I make mistakes frequently, I can look back upon their life and say, you know what? The promise is for me. 
that even in my messy parenting, God is able to work for the good, work all things for the good of those who love, who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Isn't that a, a wonderful thought? Maybe you've made a bad business decision. Maybe you've decided, oh, maybe I should never have moved to the city of East London. Maybe I'm, if I had, ever had that thought, if I had just made something or tried harder or done something different, life could have looked different. Ever had that thought before? I have, plenty of times. But for the Christian, the comfort is that God is able to work everything in your life and mine for the good. Even the person you married, maybe you regret, you know, marriage is very real. <laughs> I don't have that regret, don't tell them. <laughs> But even if you get marrying somebody and go, you know, I should never have done that. Can I say God is so powerful in his ability to work all things for the good. Remember, you only have to work things for the good if they're bad. He can do it. Isn't that wonderful? For a life submitted to him, he can do it. And it's a bit like uh, uh, someone playing a chess match against a chess champion. And they're trying all these moves. But the chess champion is just able to absorb those moves and still checkmate, no matter what it is. In a sense, that champion's purpose stands. In a sense, that's what God's like. Might there be some consequences? Oh, yes. Joseph suffered terribly at the hands of his brothers, but God worked it so miraculously that Joseph could say to his brothers, although you meant it for evil, God was working behind it all the time. Isn't that amazing? And so, look at Joseph's life. You know, this guy, he was born arrogant. Hey, he had his lovely little Dolce and Gabbana coats, and he thought he was the bee's knees. He thought everyone's going to bow down to him. And at the end of his life, when he stands before the greatest and most powerful ruler in the world, Pharaoh himself, the king of Egypt, the biggest empire in that day was Egypt. And when Pharaoh gives him this, this, this moment of fame, possible glory, he goes, Pharaoh, only God can answer these dreams. It's not me. When his brothers come, he's so humble. What God has done through Joseph's pain has radically shaped who he is as a man. He's less independent. He's learned how to resist temptation. Some of us need Potiphar's wives in our lives where we have to learn to say no. Or how about this through Joseph's pain? God prepares him to be a leader of an entire nation. You know how he does it. Is he has to get all forms of bitterness. Can you imagine a ruler who is bitter and unforgiving? When those brothers come into his presence, he has all the power to kill them. Imagine a ruler who's not humble but arrogant. Joseph could have gone, I am the dream teller. I'm the greatest thing that's arrived in Egypt. Imagine this. Imagine he could have been the kind of guy that never learned how to administer anything. Have you ever thought about it? What prepared Joseph to lead an entire nation? He had to learn how to manage a household. Then he had to learn how to manage a prison so that he could learn how to manage a palace. I'll ask you the question this morning. How significant do you see, no matter how small, the task that God has given you in your life and if you are a person who believes everything that you are doing is under the hand of God's purpose in your life, how does it change the way you see how well and faithfully you do it for Him?
it mattered for Joseph. God was training him for his future. Look how forgiving he is and reliance on God. This is amazing. He is a different man. And Charles Spurgeon said this. He said about his own troubles in his life. He was a great preacher in the 19th century. He said, oh, blessed hurricane, the hurricane of trouble that drives the soul to God and God alone. Any of you experienced hurricanes in your life? If you'll take it for what it's worth, it will drive you to the one that you were made for. Or how about Corrie ten Boon? Who knows Corrie ten Boon? She was a Holocaust survivor. She was in a German death camp. Do you know what she said? You don't know God is all you need until he's all you have. I'll say it one more time. You don't know God is all you need until he's all you have. And uh, I want to read you a poem this morning by Julie Williams, who's the wife of Taryn Williams. Some of you might have heard him speak at Sterling. But she went through a terrible time. She went through a terrible time. Oh, John, I'll grab one of those at the end. <laughs> Last year, Julie, I'll tell you her story her, very briefly. Julie went through a very difficult time last year, and she couldn't sleep. Anybody know what that's like? You're churning up inside. You can't get, you just, ah, ah. And um, she was deeply hurt by people in her life that were very close to her. And she got up, and she felt this, uh, she wrote a poem and it was for, it's for her children, and I want to read it to you this morning. The, it's called The Uninvited Guests. Dear doted on and beloved, remember this is to her children. Dear longings and dreams made powder soft flesh. Dear sweet children, born of my stretched heart, body, and white knuckled prayers. Your lives lie before you like a long banquet table. I hope you feast on its bounty and know that there's plenty to go around. I pray that you leave a seat for joy, peace, grace, truth, and love. And that they all show up and stay. I pray that fortune and fun, fulfillment and adventure pay many visits. But oh dear ones, Sweet children with thin skins still on the, on the soles of your feet and on your souls too. There are two guests who arrive. And they always, always arrive. Unannounced and uninvited. Their names of, are hardship and heartache. I pray that they knock gently and don't stay long. But when they come to dine with you, be a gracious host. Serve them just as well as you do the other guests. While they're with you, you'll be tempted to order a side of blame and vindication, but don't. There are so many choices at this buffet, but these guests' presence at your table will leave you bitter or better. Never both. You can only pick one. Choose the latter. Choose to look them in the eye. Lean in to see the gold they carry with them. It's yours to keep if you find it. Don't flinch from their touch. They mean not to break you, but to make you more humble, compassionate, human. If others brought these guests to you, raise a toast to them for bringing life's greatest teachers to your table. 
then let them go and kiss these two as they leave too. For when they leave, and they always, always do, you will find that the old you leaves with them. No longer so thin-skinned, you will be beautifully battle-worn with a heart that is no longer whole nor broken, but cracked open like a seed. My final point today is that friends' suffering will not last forever. You see, God is only allowing these evil times to be around for a short period. And he can't remove. You might say, why does God let evil exist? Well, he has to let evil exist because we exist. And if he's to remove us, if, if he's to remove evil, he has to eradicate us. But I want to say to us this morning, there is going to come a day when there is not a single thing that we have done that we'll get away with. Today, do you know that the God of heaven sees every thought, every inclination of the soul, every motivation, every action done in the darkness and the light? He sees everything. And he says in his word, not one thing is he going to miss or not hold us accountable for. And that means there's only two things, two, two ways that we can stand before God. Sin will be punished. Evil will be punished. And when we stand before God, we will give an account for everything that we've done in the flesh. And so either we will bear that punishment on the day when he decides to make all things new, or we look to one who has borne that on our behalf, which is Christ, who stands on, in the gap for us and has taken the punishment we deserve. Those are the two options. And I want to say, although we spoke about Joseph today, there is a better Savior. His name is Jesus. And Joseph saved many from death by providing them with bread. I say, Jesus provided the world with life by becoming the bread of life for us. And just like Joseph Jesus was falsely accused, but instead of being thrown into prison, Jesus was punished on a cross. And Jesus went into the pit of death, and he was hidden not in a dungeon, but in a tomb. And like Joseph, Jesus went through all this so that multitudes, multitudes would be saved. Even those who spat at him and cursed and mocked him on the cross, those close to him, his own brothers, and those far away, centuries later, like us, just like Joseph, Jesus looks at those who hurt him, and instead of vindication, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus didn't have the robe of many colors, but he wore a robe of righteousness. It was spotless and with no blemish of sin. And unlike Jesus, it wasn't unlike Joseph, it wasn't torn off him. Jesus places it on us and it fits perfectly, covering everything. Friends, today we've looked at the life of Joseph, but I want to ask you, do you know Jesus? Was there ever any proof that God could work something good out of something terrible called the cross? Yes, Jesus is the man that we look to today as the greatest evidence of God being able to take what was wicked, 
what was evil, what was atrocious, even in the eyes of common man, God was able to work so powerfully for our good. Amen. And I want to ask you today, Ridges, what is life thrown at you? To be human is to have heartache, not so. To be a Christian in this dying body as we groan for a new one is to experience what it means to still be in a world where there's wickedness. And sometimes we even contribute to that. But I'll ask you today, where does your confidence lie? Do you believe in a God that is working for the good, even in the midst of a world that seems to be gripped with pessimism, hopelessness, despair? We've got a Savior that says, look, not only have I done such an amazing gift of giving you my own son, I'm at work in this world, not only in your own personal life, but in this neighborhood, in this city, in the nations, for my ultimate good and glory. And you're a part of that. Your story is a living testimony as a Christian of how in the midst of what seemed to be so terrible, God has worked for his glory. So let's pray this morning. Father, I thank you that nothing comes into our lives as Christ followers that is outside of your hand of working it all out for the good. And some of us are in different journeys here. Some of us have long enough lives in Jesus to look back and say, look how God has been faithful to that promise that he can work all things for the good. I believe it because I've seen it. Some of us are in a journey here this morning where you're in the midst of it, you're in the thick of it, and you're going, God, how big are these waves? I don't know if I can take it. My, the boat of my life is creaking. Would you hear the life of Joseph this morning? Would you believe God's word to you as a Christian, Romans 8.28, that he is working for the good? And don't worry, though your circumstances might be shifting and shaking and changing or even delayed or disappointment or doubt or trouble, you know, the many facets of this life that come to us is he is working. He promises all things for the good as you hold to a rock-solid, unchanging God whose purpose and plan and love for you is unchanging. And there's some of us here, perhaps this morning, that have not yet started a journey with Jesus. You maybe have attended Sunday school, or you know what it means to have some of the right words to say, but you've never run to Jesus for refuge. And when I said this morning that we're going to stand before God one day, and we're going to answer for everything in the flesh, and the answer either is us taking on that punishment, and He will not forget anything. Not a single thought or action or word said or done against him. He will have divine justice. I ask you this morning, when I said that, 
what will your answer be? Are you going to stand and say, well, I try to be a good person, my friend? It will not amount to enough. What will your answer be before God? Will it be yourself or will it be Christ? And you might be saying, oh, I'm not sure. We want you to be sure as a church this morning. Will you run to Jesus for refuge today? Would you let him work in your life, which had been on a course perhaps even up until this moment, against God, against his word, against his kingdom, doing things your own way, being that independent Joseph, wanting to run your own life and do things without God and hopefully slip in right the back door at the end of it all. I want to say to you this morning, there is only one way God can start to work in your life for the good, and that is through Jesus Christ. Would you come to him this morning? Would you answer the question if you stood before God today of why he should let you into his heaven? Would you say to him, because my only hope is Christ. I trust him. And if that's you this morning, I want to close with just helping you pray to Jesus. It's not by accident you're here this morning. He's handpicked this moment just for you. And so if that's you, would you pray with your heart? Would you grab hold of Jesus with your heart? I want to help you pray to him. Would you just say to Jesus, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I want you. You know what my life has been, Lord. It has been being far from what you require. I've done evil things, Lord, that nobody's seen in my heart. I've said things, Lord, that I blush to think of. Today I need mercy. Would you say that to Jesus? I need mercy. I need forgiveness of my sin. And I'm looking only to Jesus. Would you say that? I'm looking only to Jesus for my rescue. Would that punishment on the cross speak for my punishment? Father, would you welcome me in as a child, your child, through the blood of Jesus? I ask these things In your wonderful name, amen.